verse 16 says, after Jesus was teaching on the kingdom and different, different areas of life and marriage and relationships um, and how we treat one another, it says, just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? If you look at some of the other gospels, uh, he calls him a good teacher. Uh, what good things must I do to get eternal life? Verse 17, why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there's only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones, he inquired. And Jesus replied, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. And the, the storyline gives you this idea that the rich young Euler has his checklist out and his pencil going, yeah, check, check, check. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Verse 21, Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And we know Jesus as a rabbi, as he called out his disciples, if he's saying, come and follow me, he's calling him into following him as his disciple. It wasn't just, hey, follow me to Walmart or something, you know. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. And then Jesus said to his disciples, truly I tell you, it's hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. A handful of things that come to mind as I just read this scripture uh, that I'm reminded constantly through the gospel uh, according to Matthew, and especially this story. The first one is that the kingdom is a paradox. As we think about this idea of the kingdom, that the kingdom is a paradox, and I wrote down here in my notes, but not really. Because it's a paradox to all we know and the systems of life we started learning in middle school, you know, <laughs> who's on top. Um, but not really because this first will be last and the least will be the greatest if you know Jesus actually makes sense because it's all he taught. It was his absolute way of life. It was this, it was a paradox, but it was his, it wasn't to him. Does that make sense? It was a, it was opposite, not just the ways of the flesh, but it was, it's actually opposite to the ways of religion in many ways. And, uh, which was significant in this time. It's significant in all time. So sell your stuff, resign your position, follow him makes, actually makes sense. The kingdom is, is a paradox, but not really. Second thing is that, I'm reminded in this, in this story is that, that while he will pursue us over and over and over and over, ultimately Jesus is not going to force himself on you. And he gives us so many choices and so many options and so many ways to choose to follow him. And then the third thing is I'm reminded as we think about what it means to be a disciple is that, that Jesus consistently and constantly places followers at crossroads. He didn't, he didn't just baby them along constantly in this, well, how do you feel about this? Let's just keep going this direction. He constantly brought them to this place where it was very obvious, this path you're choosing self, this path you're choosing me or my ways or my kingdom. And they were very obvious. Constantly he did that. 
and, and which is the reason why constantly he had, he drew followers by his, he drew people who were curious about him by his life and what he offered. And then his teaching many times, people just came to that crossroads and it was so obvious that they had to choose and it was very difficult for them to choose anything but self. And so his crowds dwindled many, many times um, when he put them at that crossroads. But this was his way. So this is the consistent thing that we, content, we continuously see through Jesus' teaching and, and in his life. And yet in all of this, somehow, grace is always at the heart of it all. And that redemption is always at the heart of it all and the end game, the end story. Even in rebuke, even in correction, even in church discipline, even in, in, in terrible circumstances, that, that God's desire is for his creation to be made whole. And so I hope as we look at this scripture, as we consider the nuances of the different pieces of the story that some may relate with in one part and not another, that we remember that the overall goal here is that God loves us, that as his kingdom is ushered in, there is a better way, that at times doesn't feel like the better way, but that ultimately it is. And the story really answers three questions. One is, who is Jesus? If we were to personalize it, who is Jesus? What place does he have in my life compared to other things? And what happens if I trust him with everything? Those are really the three. I was like write a long the sermon. was like, here's three points. That, that's it on this. Who is Jesus? What place does he have in my life? What place do I give him? Or has he taken in my life compared to other things? And what happens if I trust him with everything? So I want to look at five observations as we go through the scripture and just kind of want to work through it. Um, and I, they're not all over the place because they're all about the kingdom, but they have, they're going to hit different people in different places. And so I just want to work through uh, the scripture if I can. First of all, who are the characters of the story? We already have, there's really three characters of the story. We have the first two we've been talking about for every week for literally over a year. We did, we did the math. Jason, do you remember we looked it up when we started this series? It was uh, the summer before last, right? You were in high school? Yeah, it was a while ago. Um, but it's getting there. It's getting close. Um, five observations, three characters. Jesus, his disciples, his called 12 disciples who had already given up everything but was learning what the life meant, right? So they're learning to emulate the, uh, the rabbi's lifestyle and his teachings in, in order to be able to live it out and to pass it on. And then here we have this rich, young ruler. And we know that he was rich. Scripture says that he, he, had, he had money. Uh, he, was, he was a ruler. It talks about that in the scripture as well as the other. And we know that he was young, and, which is interesting because in this culture, typically the young were not rulers. They were certainly not rich. So we know simply by the description of who this person was that he was a very, for his age, he was very successful. Maybe he was kind of a self-made, a self-made man. Maybe he was completely committed to his faith, to religion, um, the, the law. He was committed to his nation and to the ways. And so we know in other scriptures that he was considered a nobleman. He was an official. He was a religious leader. He was a man with authority beyond his age, and he was successful, yet he approached Jesus with humility. So maybe that shows a little wisdom beyond his age. As he approached Jesus, he was not disqualified in how he approached him. Does that make sense? He approached him with the right 
with the right attitude, and he actually approached him with the correct life in, in, in many ways, as, it, as far as it came to the laws uh, of, of religion and the letter of the law. So he came humbly, and it said, the man came to Jesus and asked, teacher, what good things must I do to get eternal life? And Jesus responded, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. Why does Jesus ask him, why do you ask me about what is good? He asks him a question, what good thing must I do? And he turns, answers his question with another question. He says, why do you ask me about what is good? Why did Jesus do that? Why do you think that is? Can you get that scripture up there maybe? Sorry, we're having complications today. And now I'm asking to do something in the middle of the, with the, don't worry about it. Listen, the man came to Jesus, asked the question, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? And Jesus responded, why do you ask me about what is good? What is Jesus doing there? Any thoughts? Huh? He's looking for his motive. What else comes to mind? Okay, and why do you, how do you come to that conclusion? Because you're brilliant? No. <laughs> because he replies. Jesus replies to his own answer, right? And he tells him, gives him a little insight to that. He says, there's only one who is good. Anything else come to mind? Why Jesus would do this? I think there are a couple reasons why he does it. So you might, might be right. Say it. Okay, so what he considers, maybe his paradigm... But he considers good might not be what Jesus considers to be good. Well, I think it's possibly rhetorical in that moment as well because Jesus doesn't really give him time to answer the question, right? He says, why do you ask me about what is good? And then he replies, there is only one who is good. Because what Jesus is doing here is he's calling him out on it, exactly what you guys were saying. I think he's holding a mirror up to what his own question is really implying and what he's really asking. But then Jesus really redirects him, doesn't he? He says, what you're asking is the wrong question. The first observation is there's a huge difference between doing good and knowing the one who is good. So Jesus very quickly shifted it. He says, don't worry about what's asking about what you need to do. That's good. You need to ask about the one who is good. He's shifting it. And in this context, we know that it, all Israel was waiting on who? The Messiah. And Jesus claimed to be, and we know that he is the Messiah. And so he's, he's shifting. Remember, all of this teaching that he's doing is shifting their paradigm away from the law and into the fulfillment of the law. Shifting from waiting on what is to come to recognizing to what is already here. And then our lives can then be reflected by that reality. So there's a huge difference between doing good and knowing the one who is good. Why is it important to distinguish between those two? Kind of answered it. But what are the kind of just raw reasons? Why is it important to know the difference between doing good and knowing Jesus? Because it's not the same. Why? Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. So it's really about this doctrine of salvation that we know 
that it's through Christ alone, right? So he's struggling here in his trying to please God. This isn't a bad guy trying to, you know, that we know of, trying to do, uh, uh, that does bad things, is manipulative, all that. He actually seems to be trying to follow the law to the T, trying to do everything he's been taught to do, okay? But it's, it's significant for us to know the difference because Jesus is teaching the difference between this religion and the difference between the religion and relationship. He's teaching the difference between this covenant and this new covenant. He's talking about this doctrine of salvation and then ultimately the power then that comes from that to create life change. So the first two verses, Jesus already redirected him by answering a question with a question. And we know the difference between doing good in our brain and knowing he who is good in our brain. But is there a warning here that we are given in this in our own life? Is there a warning that we could say, you know what, if I take heed to this, here's what I need to watch out for. Does anything come to mind to you? Yeah. Right. Right. Well, and ultimately, you could do good for the right reason. You could do good for the wrong reason. All right? Well, not ultimately. You can do that. And then ultimately, it doesn't matter, right? When our doctor of salvation, we know it's who we know. It's not our ability to overcome, but it's his. So there's a big shift. There's a big surrender, a big shift. But for me, I'm looking at this and I'm going, you know, here's my warning about doing good. It's my second observation from the scripture is that good things can be a distraction from the only one who is good. Man, they're good to do and we're supposed to commit our life. But, but we have to be careful to make sure that the things that we fill our lives with, that they don't become a distraction from the one who is good. From a dependency on that. It's really easy, even as a believer to begin to gain our confidence and to begin to gain even our identity, allow our identity to shift some and in what we do and how we modify our behavior instead of how deeply we love God or learn to know and cherish Jesus and to appreciate and to, and to love his mercies and his grace. And, and where we are on that line will inform our motives and how we live, and what we cherish, and where we spend our energies and our efforts, and where our mind, what consumes our minds, and where our values are, that informs those things. And so for us to take a, to sit back and to evaluate where we are, and what things play, what role things play in our lives, and it's, it's really, I think it's really important, and I think that's where Jesus is going here. Behavior modification versus identity transformation. To know Christ and to be made new in him, learning to live as he lived, taking on his priorities, seeing ourselves, seeing ourselves as he sees us. Not as we see ourselves through our failures and our brokenness and what has been done to us that's out of our control. He does not define us through those things as we do. Learning to see ourselves as he sees us, finding our identity in him, those things will inform then our behavior and how we live. 
behavior. That's interesting. Um, I went to a uh, Baptist college. When I went to go there, I went just to play basketball and chase girls. I caught one. <laughs> Didn't play much basketball, but I caught one girl. Um, I don't know. Um, but, I, you know, I, I went there, and by God's providence, um, I know he just gave me enough ability to play basketball to get to this school. Um, and where I started ministry and, and my junior year and my trajectory of life just changed. Um, but my freshman year, I went into this, to this place and it just seemed almost like a uh, youth camp at the beginning of college there. And it was exciting. It was fun. And everyone assumed you were a committed believer or at least everyone per, you pretended to be. And as I began to try and get, as I began to get immersed in this Christian subculture, you know, I, it took one trip to the mall to look like I was just committed, you know? You know, his paying your game t-shirts and the what would you do bracelets and the new Bible. With the, I mean, you could, you could put that on. And there was something good about being in that Christian culture. There was. There was something that was good about that, but there was also something bad because I learned how to pretend to be something I wasn't yet. And what I learned to do was to be approved and accepted by Christians. And it took years and years before, you, before I really began to learn what it meant to truly be, to accept myself as a believer in Christ and to really fall in love with who Christ was, right? And so to do is different than to know. And I'm telling you, how that impacted my view of the kingdom, it was huge. I had zero kingdom ideology or theology until maybe eight years ago. When you really press into the person of Jesus and who he is and how he views us in the world, it begins to inform how you see his kingdom, his kingdom now. And you know what? I'm going to get ahead of myself. I'm not sure. I, I think I took this out and forgot to put it back in. So if I repeat it, I'm sorry. But I think it's interesting that this, this man was asking, how do, I, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus' answer was what? It was life. It was how to live life. Do you remember growing up in Sunday school, those of you who went to vacation Bible school and getting, you know, walking the aisle every summer and getting saved again and, and, and all this stuff and, and being just learn about one day heaven, one day heaven, one day heaven. Now, hold on, protect yourself from the sinners of the world and, and just hold on until Jesus comes back. And it was really messed up. That's messed up theology. And I remember even thinking selfishly, God, Jesus, just don't come back until after I'm married and I have some kids and I have a little bit of a career, if you wouldn't mind. You know, so selfish. My mentality was like, you know, heaven was, um, but Jesus constantly says, no, when he says it is finished, he is ushering in the kingdom now. Sure, there is a kingdom not yet that is coming. That is even more amazing where there will be no pain. There will be no tears. There will be no, we'll see it all. But there is a kingdom now, a way of living Christ's life now that is far beyond you and I could ever dream. Now. <coughs> Sorry. His, answer, his question was, how do I inherit eternal life forever? Jesus' answer was, start now. Because it's now. Life is now. Live it now. Okay. 
So let's get back to the question then. Verse 16, what must I do to get eternal life? That was his question. Jesus' response, if you want eternal life, keep the commandments. It's amazing how Jesus speaks our language. He went straight to what he knew this guy wanted to hear. Verse 18, which ones? He inquired with his checklist out. Jesus replied, shall not murder, shall not commit adultery, do not steal, false testimony, honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself. Young man requests eternal life. Christ responded with life now. Observation three, to understand the kingdom, we have to understand the connection between eternal life and life. The two are inseparable. One has everything to do with the other. This is this pattern. Remember Jesus' teaching, whatever you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. Whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. There's a connection. Living now. His response, all these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? All these I have kept. I've kept, I've kept all these. Does that raise an eyebrow with anyone else? Why don't I believe them? And Jesus doesn't go, no, you haven't. But I, I you know... All these I have kept. And I go, eh. You know, I've said a little bit on this on the scripture, and, and most likely what has happened here is to the letter of the law, he's kept him. Yes, he actually has not murdered anyone. But according to Jesus, the anger, you know, adultery. No, I've not committed adultery. But according to Jesus, even looking upon. Um, so I, I think his, his, he's probably still stuck in the letter of the law because that's what he's known and what is required of him. So according to the letter of the law, no, he's not probably committed, even if his heart is good and he's been a good, faithful. It's interesting how Jesus answers. So he says, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? So Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven. Then come follow me. If you want to be perfect, does Jesus require us to be perfect? Why did he say that to him? He's going for it, wouldn't he? You ever feel like that? I mean, I just, you know, I, I, I think about our life. I think about my life, but I think about the areas that I just keep struggling with, and I'm always making promises. God, I'll just never do that again. I'll never have that, you know, whatever. And, and I just wonder if one day, you know, Jesus would just say that. Well, fine. If you want to just be perfect, then do this, you know? He's not. We put things on ourselves that Jesus does not put on us. It's the reason for the cross. It can't be done. You can't be perfect. As we think about identity in the kingdom, that it's, that's probably the biggest things that you and I will always struggle with is to reconcile that, deserving his grace that we just don't deserve. That's why mercy is so beautiful. So why did he say this to this man? You said it. He knew his heart. Or at least his wrong pursuit. Observation four, Jesus' request of us make it personal, is going to be directly into the heart of what we are holding on to the most, which ironically is probably what we need to let go of the most. And I think it's probably different for each of us. You know, if we were to sit face to face and we just said, Jesus, what is it that you require of me? It might be different for every one of us. This is where it comes into the trust and the belief. We're asking really this what this requires is us to answer the question, Jesus, can I trust you with my most prized possessions? And then two, do I believe you want your best for me or my family or my future? 
There's the struggle. I don't know if I fully understand, uh, uh, fully agree with this definition completely, but in pieces of it, the heart of this definition, I do. I've heard someone describe an idol as the thing that you are most afraid to lose. Think about the thing in your life you are most afraid to lose, and it's very likely that that is a thing that could most likely become an idol to us that we hold on to more than we're willing to let go. Does that make sense? Does that resonate at all? Maybe for some. Possessing and deserving have nothing to do with the kingdom because there's no place for entitlement. This young man's life was built on what he accomplished, his position, his possessions. His identity was built on self-reliance and personal achievements. And Jesus already taught in Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters. Verse 22, when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I tell you, it's hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. It's funny, that scripture, we've heard that, right? Everyone's heard that scripture. It's easier for the camel to go through the eye of the needle. We get focused on that so much. We really don't know what that means. We really don't. I've, I've looked this up crazy, like crazy this week. And there's many different rules, schools of thought on what that actually means. Um, there's a thought that there's a Persian saying that's similar to it, but it's an it's a elephant through the eye of a needle. And so it's more contextual here for Israel to have that camel. Um, some think that it's a misinterpretation of the word camel, which was supposed to be cable, which is harder to put through the eye of a needle than the thread. Um, there are those that believe there is, a, it's talking about the camel gate, which is a gate that is very, very small on the, on the, on the walls, Jerusalem wall, that might be used um, secretly to enter Jerusalem, but it was so small in order for a camel to go through there, you would have to strip off everything off of the camel, take everything away from it, and even for it to crawl through in order to fit through which some historians believe is ridiculous because, one, no one's ever found it or seen it. That it doesn't really, that it exists, and that it doesn't make any sense to go through that camel, through that, through that uh, gate when there are other gates readily available to you. So there's all kinds, but here's the deal that Jesus is just saying, I think in a similar way, talking about a plank in your eye. You're not going to get a plank in your eye. It's going to knock your head off, right? It won't actually, or swallowing a camel. He's just using a storyline of saying, it's impossible. Do not store up, let's see, verse 19 in Matthew 6 from the Sermon on the Mount. Do not store up yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not steal in or do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So back in verse uh, 25, chapter 19, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? And this word astonished means to be strike, to, to strike with panic or shock. Like they were amazed, but they were also a little nervous. Like, wait a minute, this guy just said he followed all the rules. He's done everything right. And, and he's still struggling. Then, then who, who can be saved? 
Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are impossible. Or are possible, sorry. With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So what is the response saying? They lose you in all that side talk, sorry. He's saying, no, everyone can. Anyone can. There's no one who's gone too far. There's no one out of reach. There's no one who's done too much. But to recognize, man can't do it. We can't do it. Only he can. Observation five, as long as our faith is about our ability to succeed, conquer, or prove ourselves worthy, we will never overcome whatever is in front of us. Fill in that blank. Whatever it is, whatever is in front of us, as long as our faith is about our ability to succeed, conquer, or prove ourselves worthy, we will always struggle to overcome. So Peter answered him, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? I love this. Jesus says, truly I tell you, the, the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or wives or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. You know, it's interesting. Multiple times the disciples have been wrestling with who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom, right? And Jesus always rebukes them. And now all of a sudden they come with humility and fear asking Jesus, We've given up everything. Is that enough? And he just comforts them and rewards them. And at this time, tells them, you'll be sitting with me. There'll be 12 thrones, and you'll be with me. A couple of thoughts just to close it out. Um, those of us in this room <clears throat> struggling with surrender, holding on, We probably know who we are. (laughs) There's that thing or those things that we easily let go. And there are other really big things that we just hold on to. We pretend aren't there. We either make deals with God or we pretend he doesn't see it too or whatever, but it's really impacting our journey. Um, Just that reminder that while he pursues us to the end, He's not going to force himself upon us. That the choice is ours. That young ruler, we know it doesn't have to do with his stuff or not stuff. It had to do with the place that stuff held in his life. Jesus knew his position, his power, success had defined him. Our journey is to find our identity in him, not our accomplishments, our place, or our possessions. We do evaluating of what place, why it is those things are so hard to let go of or to surrender. Most likely, it's because of the place it holds in our life. It substitutes the trust in what Jesus is calling us towards. We can trust him. He knows better than we know what the results are with those things. Do you guys know Alan Graham? He's a founder of Mobile Loves and Fishes. He started the uh, Community First Initiative 
that we've partnered with multiple times with this, the homeless community, providing community housing and community for the disabled and chronically homeless in Austin. I remember several years ago looking at multiple properties with him that he wanted to do this thing on, this dream. And one specific property I went out to with him, and he was blown away. Couldn't believe it. It was by the airport. I'm like, man, this is it. And he goes, I think it is. It was just so beautiful. It was an amazing piece of property. And months and months and months went into this dream that he had fought for for years and years and years. And the city just would not allow him to do it. People all around him were crushed. And he was like, it's all right, bro. God's got something better. And to this day, if you go out to their community first village, you will see 30 of the most beautiful acres that you will find around the Austin area that God gave to him. That's about 100 times better than what he even dreamed of. That's what our God does. His dreams are far greater than we can even imagine. We could trust him with our family. We could trust him with our future. We could trust him with our finances, with our hopes, with our dreams. Because his dreams are better than ours. Always worried in a sermon when you're talking about going through different experiences because many of you gone, have gone through things and you're in, you're in situations and you're experiencing pains and you have wounds that have nothing to do with anything you've done. And you've been trying to surrender forever and you're just in the middle of deep pain. And I never want to take that lightly and so it's, it's hard to speak into that uh, sometimes. One, know that God knows your pain. Um, but as we think about um, seeking answers you can't seem to find, um, if you find yourself in a position where it just seems impossible, just remember the verse in here that with man it is, but with God all things are possible. And, and so I sat back and I'm like, well, God, what does that mean? Give me something with that. And the thing that came to me is just the reminder of that fight to constantly balance um, that when we are needing him and we are seeking healing or we are seeking recovery, that end game of healing and answers, that we need to press deeper in that balance of not just needing him and seeking recovery, but seeking him as we need recovery. And keeping that balance and keeping pressing into him because it's through him that things that are happening then also those of you who are trying to give all, maybe you're in that place. You're in a season where you're giving everything you've got and you, maybe you feel like the disciples or, or like Peter and, and you hear things and it just looks like no matter what you do, there's, it doesn't come to that place. Just remember Peter's answer. We have left everything to follow you. What will there be for us? Keep pressing. There's a promise that will be seen. Let's pray.